0: Greetings. I'm Josh Tyson, co-author of the first best-selling book about conversational AI, Age of Invisible Machines. The book explores the learnings of 20-year conversational AI veteran and OneReach AI CEO Rob Wilson. Each week, Rob and I bring in a guest to continue the conversation we started in the pages of our book. This week on the Invisible Machines podcast, we're talking about the scope and urgency of systemic change in this very moment, Uh, the ways that disruptive technologies like conversational AI might take root in the education system, how systemic change often comes down to reframing discussions around incentives and outcomes, and what could it mean for us to incentivize responsible choices? These are critical questions in this rather precarious moment, and Rob and I are eager to share this discussion we had with Cheryl Kababa, author of Closing the Loop, and Chief Strategy Officer at Substantial. Cheryl started her career as a graphic designer at Getty Images before becoming a design lead at Microsoft. She also worked as a senior experience designer at Philips, Adaptive Path, and Frog. Closing the Loop is available now from Rosenfeld Media, and we definitely think you should get a copy. Also, if you dig this conversation, definitely check out Episode 11 of Season 2 with Lou Rosenfeld himself. Right now, though, Let's get into this timely and provocative chat with Cheryl Kababa. Well, Cheryl, thanks so much for joining us here on the podcast today. We're really excited to have you.
1: Thank you. I'm really excited to be here.
0: And Rob, it's a pleasure as always to see you. Yep. Back at you. All right. (laughs) So, Cheryl, there's there's so many places we can go today. Um, But to start off, I kind of had this thought, like, Something we talk about a lot in our book is that, you know, we kind of envision a, a future where our interactions with technology uh, become more conversational and and things like screens and GUIs might start kind of fading into the background a bit. Uh, and, you know, to us, that doesn't signal that the work of the experienced designer is done. I think from where the way we see it, it's far from done. It's actually becomes kind of more important. But, but is it possible that as we kind of move in that direction, that systemic design might kind of become the focal point of experience design.
1: Yeah, that's a re- that's a really good question because I feel like in order for that to happen, it would have to I don't know, we'd have, we'd have to really have a fundamental shift in how we kind of think about technology and how we develop technology. Um just because in my experience it's really challenging for those who are developing technologies, especially like emerging technologies, to keep in mind kind of the surrounding system and all of the things that might act as potential barriers to basically the success of that technology. And I think part of it is due to just kind of like this fundamental kind of techno-optimism that a lot of people in the technology industry have. And that in some ways you have to have in order to believe that um, right, what you're developing is necessary or exciting or new.
2: Yeah, you're always building a technology that's going to fit into an idealistic system that works as it should, not as it does.
1: Yeah, <laughs> not yeah. with
2: the flaws and you know, and and nuance that that it, you know is typical, but m- more the idealistic system that the builder of the technology that doesn't work in that system day in and day out
1: yeah exactly um and i think a lot of what i see i i do um my design strategy work almost exclusively in education and that's a really good example of a space where it's really disruptive what are, like, sort of considered disruptive technologies,
0: uh-huh. it's
1: really hard for them to take hold. And not only that, but, like, there's kind of a fundamental disconnect when those who are kind of designing what they're thinking of as a disruptive technology then kind of learn about how the education system works and just how many barriers there are, just how entrenched certain... um processes, concepts, and ways of doing things are, the incentive system, and yeah. it's a big wake-up call.
2: Yeah, I think it's it's a really good example of, in an idealistic form, education is, you know, highly customized to the student, highly adaptive, highly contextualized for their likes, location, blah 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 like the true mentor kind of environment but the reality is 30, 40, 50 kids to one teacher it looks more like a system than it looks and a series of basic algorithms and the fact that those are synchronized across many institutions not just across the country but across the globe that all feed into other systems that have to they have to plug into all of those systems. So those kids have to know a certain amount of uh, information and types of information so that this, you know, post-secondary school system is productive. It's in the end, it's a bunch of basic algorithms that are being executed with the perception that learning is some sort of mentorship. So you go well, if we're going to automate those systems, we're not automating maybe what we should be doing. We're automating what we are doing, the flawed systems, what we're doing. And I think that's always hard for people to wrap their heads around when you say automation is shouldn't be about automating the way you're doing it wrong. It should be about automating the way you ought to be doing it. Um, and that's, I guess, one step removed and sort of... Adds another layer of discussion for people to go. Oh, now I understand how it's going to change everything.
1: <laughs> right. Um, yeah.
0: Yeah. Well, the educational system is is interesting too because Rob and I were having a discussion about uh, the idea of like people being integral part uh, parts of systems. Like we tend to kind of think of the system as separate from the person, but in the ed- in education in particular, you're you're keenly aware that people are a fundamental part of the system, and it also it all almost I mean, a lot of times it plays out rather tragically. Um, and, and it's interesting, too, because I feel like I hadn't really thought about it, but like, you know, your family system that you're born into is, is sort of a small system. But the education system is also your first experience with being part of a system.
1: Yeah, that's it's kind of interesting thinking about, um, yeah, it, just in terms of, Rob, what you were just saying, for example, about like automating the things that we're doing wrong. Um, I was recently working on a project around assessments in education, and it's really interesting. Just and you know this goes this connects too with what you're saying, Joshua, about how people are a fundamental part of the system. So whenever you see assessments being developed, oftentimes they're developed with like the best of intentions, where it's they're meant to be what we call like formative assessments where you know, you're know you testing knowledge or ways of doing things, and then you are getting feedback, let's say like, it's assessing a teacher in a classroom or something, then you're getting feedback on what you're doing well, what you're not doing well, possibly suggestions on how to improve. But what happens with many of these assessments as they get sort of deployed into use is that they end up not being... Um, used for that formative nature in terms of like like maybe they're giving information back to the teacher where it's like, you're doing this right, you're doing this thing wrong. But then there's like nothing they can do with that. It's just data collection and data is being thrown at them. And then on top of that, the outputs of those assessments are then used in other ways that were never intended, which is right. like um, funding school environments right right? based on teacher performances and so it becomes this punitive thing um and you know all of the policymakers around are incentivized to use those assessments because they're like this is an easy way to collect data about which schools are succeeding and which schools are failing but it was never meant to be doing that in the first place and that's like a huge um issue with whenever like I think a lot when I you know engaging in um, these sort of gnarly systems, thinking problems in education is like, I always ask the question of, is this thing that's being used now, is it being used in the way that it was intended to be used to begin with? Because oftentimes it shifts along the way. Yeah.
2: Yeah. We have discussed this on and off with different folks along our journey. And that is the role that competition plays and should play in education. And I think the the most interesting was the the one with Cassie Kazakov recently, where we talk about competition um as a motivator right and and that's that's ultimately you know what it's used for in its optimistic form right as you say primitive right. right um the other side of it is it's a motivator you know to to, to create competition among teachers, among schools, among students, um and the idea that competition as a motivator is good uh, is a, I think a, I think it's a question, is it good? Because what you're talking I mean, about is like the dark right? side of it, right? Yeah, there's a dark <laughs> side of it, and you go, it does the good outweigh the bad in an educational system. And, you know, cause we start me- measuring the wrong things and, and the idea, I think we've, we've kind of concluded or I've concluded over these conversations is that competition for, of the right things is great. Competition on the wrong things is hugely damaging. Yeah, uh, be- Because what's easy to measure isn't necessarily what's most important.
1: Yeah, that's exactly right. It's making me think of, um, and I think I re- refer to this because I read it while I was writing my book, is The Tyranny of Metrics. Um, okay. And um, I, I'm forgetting the name of the writer. I think it's like Jerry Zeller or something. And basically what he argues is that we will always kind of um, – if you think about, let's say, organizational change management or just like organizational systems, which um, I often point out that systems thinking and organizational change management have gone hand in hand for decades now because organizations are such complex systems, even if we think that they're relatively simple and hierarchical and everything. But oftentimes, like, or your or your own organization is where you can sort of like just observe how incentives play out. So, um oftentimes, if oftentimes we're measuring things in order to promote good outcomes, but then people start just performing to the measurement and mm-hmm. you can kind of you can kind of see this even in systems like um, you know, I talk a lot about things like in, big tech platforms like Facebook, you are looking at, like, daily active user, monthly active users, and before you know it, that is just a metric, but that metric is meant to um, drive all of these different incentives that have kind of, like, nothing to do with that metric, whether it's, like, quarterly earnings or what have you. And so how does that end up sort of, like, perverting kind of, like, the outcomes that we all not just like we all want as a society, but how wh- that you even want as like an organization. Uh-huh. Um, and I think that's like the piece where now that, now we integrate, you know, technological tools that are meant to enhance our like measurements. Um, how does that further, I, I don't know. How do we either further like devolve into continuing to measure the wrong thing? Or, are these things do these things give us the ability to start trying to measure the right things and connect them to outcomes? And it kind of just depends on the humans involved and how they, yeah, um, kind of manage that,
2: yeah. Or just maybe like another aspect is to just being okay with the absence of competition when the only way you can come up with to compete doesn't make sense. So, this idea that. We have to compete, and if that means we'll compete on something that doesn't matter, fine, so be it, because there has to be competition, versus we can't find a way to compete. In, in other words, like school, we're competing against who can show up on time and who can get their homework in on time, not who came up with the best idea, not who understood and evolved a concept not original thought, none of these things. Creativity, no. Did you show up on time and did you get, the idea that you get your homework in late and you lose 50% of your grade, right? <laughs> like, so your idea is 50% less good because it was late? Like, how does that make any sense, right? But it's it's measurable. Whereas right. the quality of the idea, qualitative, difficult to measure and and now you're going to submit something that is maybe 75 percent or less of what it could be just to get it in on time
1: (laughs) yeah that's a that's an interesting example because well first of all it resonates a lot with me because like as as an instructor in um you know, the university system. And like my least favorite part is like the grading. I'm just like interested in the <laughs> ideas. Right? right. And so I'm just like, oh, this is like the most like rote thing I can possibly engage in. And it's got me thinking about, you know, for example, like there's a lot of hand wringing about how students are using Chat GPT to write their essays now and what have you. And it's it like I kind of think about when I hear that just well does that mean we're kind of like testing the wrong things like should we like if they can just have chat GPT right. write the essay and you and you can't tell whether it's chat GPT or not then as an instructor we need to kind of find different ways of testing knowledge because that's gonna exist no matter what and like no you know GPT detector thingy right. is ever going to work to kind of tell you otherwise. So we're having them do what amounts to rote work. If they're first of all having something like that write their essays and wanting to have something like that write their essays, then we might need to kind of think about how we're structuring and evaluating gaining knowledge to begin with, because that's not going to that's not going to work. Um,
2: yeah. So. Yeah, it's it's this like force function of it, there's a vulnerability in the system. It's now being exposed. We now have to do something about it. Um and even though we've all acknowledged it was broken, we didn't fix it. <laughs> and now we have to fix it and everyone's complaining. <laughs> Just... And would rather just not fix it and just ban ChatGPT and think just... like, let's not address the problem. Let's just ban ChatGPT. And then they're realizing like, how you can't. You can't. We're we're going to have to move forward. <laughs> we're going to have to face this problem. Um, and and try to solve it. And that maybe we're all better for it because now I have to, as a teacher, ensure that the student. Understood and comprehended the idea, (laughs) not through the fact that they could write an essay on it. But I'm going to have to find another way, like maybe talking to them.
1: Yeah, Mm -hmm. actually, (laughs) like having a
2: conversation uh... with them (laughs) to see if they understood it. (laughs) 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 You mean I have to talk to my students? (laughs) This no (laughs) (laughs) This is a terrible idea.
1: It's like if I have to do that, then I have to show how much or little I know. Then so
0: right. <laughs> does if that, they're does smarter that point than me? <laughs>
1: does, does that point to
0: something that's really difficult about systemic change, though? That you know, it almost has to be incremental and it has to be incentivized, right? Like, I, I think sometimes we we look at these broken systems around us and we're tempted to just like let's just scrap it, let's throw it away, but that. You know, that would never work, especially in the, in the educational system. That would just be horrible to do that. So it, it yeah. seems like it comes down to, like, finding smaller steps that we can incentivize properly while not losing sight of long-term goals, I suppose.
1: Yeah, I think um, it's it's interesting because when I, when I just when I see things like that and, you know, I'm, like, hearing about it on my own university about, like, do you ban chat GPT in your classroom or whatever – Um, I think part of being a good systems thinker is just like constantly like reframing. So it's like, how do we reframe this in a way that is not about like how to maintain the status quo if the status quo is not working, but are there other things like we need to change in order to make kind of this new development work? And I think oftentimes like our first inclination, I think just as humans is to like react and to be like, oh, how do we just like keep it the way it was and yeah. I think um, it's really important just like with the systems thinking mindset to be like well what if that's not going to change what else needs to change um, and I think when you start thinking in that way too um, I like Josh that you said um, broken systems because oftentimes I try to remind my students like the, most systems are not actually broken they are like working in a dynamic in which they're designed that way because certain people are incentivizing or certain people are incentivized by how it's working. So if you start thinking about it that way, then you start thinking about like, well, what do we need to change when it comes to incentives?
2: Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. One thing that, um, that really resonates about this conversation for me is, uh, you know, in the companies that we work with, When we go in to look at opportunities to, you know, enhance, automate, whatever. The first stage is almost a stage of exposing all of the sort of ways they're not prepared for this future. And in some ways it sets them back. It's not, oh, let's start automating. It's they, they end up valuing the fact that they now have a laundry list of things they need to go fix. Um and then that becomes the next thing that happens. So it's like this delay for us that we don't we don't start automating on day one. We expose all of the fundamental things they have to change on day one, day two, <laughs> then they've got to go change those things, and then oh, we they, can start automating. <laughs> oh yeah, it's great. <laughs> <laughs> it's only like 18 months and twenty-four month sales cycles. Oh, <laughs> But, but they do value it. It's there's no question. Um, even though we can't monetize it, it, it they do value that. Uh, I wanted to kind of take this on on that note. I, I, I want to kind of dive into systems like in a nerdy way. <laughs> um, let's go. Okay, so there's a there's a um. Mm-hmm you know, a book out there, prediction machines. And, um, one of the kind of concepts that really connected with me being a math person, um, is that especially companies, you know, you could say that government and education all fall into this category, but, but especially companies, because the, the measurable outcome is prop like easy, right? Profit margins and it's a little harder to pinpoint is an education system successful? It's easier to do for a company because they, they have these, like, you know, profit margin growth, you know, these very yeah. clear metrics. The um, Milton
1: Friedman yeah, <laughs> you metrics. Got it.
2: Yes. <laughs> um, now, whether they're right or wrong, that's like a whole other story. Um, and so. You can look at these companies as, especially the large enterprise, like large scale companies, as a series of algorithms that get spread across many, many, like distributed, um, that get executed, uh, in a way that's, um, fairly consistent, you know, so McDonald's will make a burger the same way across the world that tastes the same at the same temperature, right? Um, So that consistency. And then the quality of the algorithm is such that it's measured by, A, how generally useful it is across all of these different contexts, right? Different countries, different cultures, blah, blah, blah. And then how long that algorithm remains relevant and useful in that the burger still tastes good. Like after... Decades, the same burger made the same way, still tastes good to a lot of people across the world. Running the same algorithm, so what a company ultimately could be boiled down to is a series of algorithms that have uh, longevity and and work in in many many different contexts and are simple enough for human beings to understand and execute consistently, right? So there's a simplicity that is critical to all of this, that even if you had an accurate algorithm that was adaptive in many ways in a system that had all those qualities, but it wasn't simple, then people would execute and make mistakes and therefore you would lose the value of the algorithm. So simplicity being like a really key metric. And that simplicity of algorithm is also what causes this obtuse, like all these errors that we see, because it's not complex enough. It doesn't account for different contexts in a good way. It's it, They're just very blunt instruments, right? Right. Um, and so it's this idea of everybody going to chat GPD and saying, what should I eat today? It says carrots. If we all defer our decision making to that, there's a shortage of carrots across the world and like it's a disaster, right? Um, it's the same with the algorithm of Facebook likes and like, it's so blunt that it has, it has like a blast radius when used so broadly and it's, it becomes dangerous just not by the lack of its sophistication alone, but by the mass adoption and lack of sophistication, (laughs) right? The scale of it. Yeah. Um, all right. So if, if, algor- if you could boil down companies to algorithms, then you understand that there are different parts of it. There's the understanding when a system is necessary. Like systems algorithms, I'll equate those to the same thing, right? You could boil a system down into an algorithm. Um, so there's the, uh, this, this you know, particular system needs an algorithm, right? This problem needs an algorithm. A solution to this problem is an algorithm. So identification of a a need for a system. Um, Humans usually do that. The design of the system. Humans usually do that. The enforcement and monitoring... Sorry, the enforcement of the system. Application of the system, enforcement of the system. Humans usually do that. Um, The measurement of the efficacy of the system and the feedback loop to improve the system. So the, you know, humans usually do that. Um, and then the metacognitive part, like the, the, the decision that the system needs to be adapted, that like, we need to improve the system for this reason, or for that reason, you know, the idea that the system itself, um, doesn't decide to learn a new thing, right? A human decides that the system needs to adapt to a new thing. So for example. If suddenly there's a huge uptick in E. coli in beef, uh, then a human would decide that we're going to cook the burgers a little bit longer and at a higher temperature, right? It, it's it's at this point it's not typically done by a machine, and so there's all these aspects of like looking at the system, cr- the creation, blah blah blah, that now. With deep learning, with generative AI, we can begin to see that machines could do all of these things, right? Um, maybe in a lot of cases on parity with how humans do them, but in some instances and very shortly better than humans do it, right? Which we could say goes from like general intelligence to super intelligence, right? Um... And so the implications of systems being created, designed, monitored, improved by machines and not humans has a lot of implications on just the sheer existence of a company and what it means to be a company. Um, And then I'll finish this up with talking to Gartner about the fact that a large percentage of the future consumer is going to be a machine, right? So your, your printer is gonna order more ink and it's gonna use some reputation system to d- make that decision instantaneously, right? And so the best, cheapest ink today might not be tomorrow and all the printers will know it within a nanosecond. And so today your company gets a million orders of ink and tomorrow it gets three. In that new world where where the, the system is not so much driven by people, but the nodes of the system are so much driven by machines. Uh, um, it's hard to wrap, in my in in my opinion, hard to wrap your head around the implications of systems being run by machines, um, even if, and I think in all of these cases, it's co-run, right? Like, I think we're not talking about systems making decisions by themselves. We're talking about running it past people, but there's some point in time like a GPS where, you know, yeah, it's going to show you the route that you should take. It's going to suggest the route, but your ability to second guess it, you know, is going to be minimal in terms of efficacy, right? You're not going to be able to second guess it. So I wanted to get your thoughts on, on generative AI and how systems, how you think all of this is going to affect the area of systems thinking. <laughs> you know, like this yeah. is a massive shift for your disciplines.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's it's kind of interesting because I think as for first of all, I don't I don't really think of myself as a formalized systems thinker. Like I think of myself as a designer who Um, engages in a systems thinking practice. Uh And what that means is that I will um, always on some level try to figure out or prioritize the human behavior in relation to the system. And I think this is an interesting question because in some ways this this has been going on already i was thinking about your example it's like uh-huh. my printer already orders its own ink um <laughs> and it's like my 11 year old um you know it's like a brother printer so my 11 year old calls like the bro- like the brother mall like uh-huh. it's brother that is sending <laughs> the ink um and she actually like like prints out these little um messages to us from brother mall where it's like <laughs> oh i've sent the ink to my brother blah, blah, blah. and it's kind of funny just like i don't know just thinking about especially kind of like this new generation's relationship with um kind of these automated systems um i spend maybe a little too much time on tiktok keeping up with the youth and it's, there's it's, 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 so it's, 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 much like <laughs> not that i am good at it but um i try and there's so much self-awareness of you know they're always saying like the algorithm fringe. is algorithming, <laughs> yeah. you know like yeah. it's and this idea of like curating your feed by trying to outsmart the algorithm And you see this on Amazon, too, with like drop shippers and like trying to kind of drive and reviews and trying to kind of game these systems that exist that are supposed to be automated in a way that benefits us. You constantly see these humans like just trying to outsmart it or to um, shape it in their direction. And I don't think that's going to stop anytime soon. And so my question would be like what is the role of like human behavior when it comes to either being adjacent to those um you know automated systems and how they're talking to each other or in terms of gaming like what's happening with those automated systems yeah. because it constantly happens
2: mhm yeah the gamification like the, the you know are the human taking advantage of the blunt simplicity of the algorithm in my opinion, is more one human outsmarting smarting another human. Right. <laughs> because it's it's the human that came up with... That's why the algorithm so simple, because a human came up with it. Um, but then when you try to outsmart the algorithm created by the machine, now you have an... Un- it's like trying to play chess against a computer. Like, you're not going to win. You're going to lose that game, right? So... Will it stop people from trying? No, we still we still play chess against the computer, knowing that it's going to win every time. Um, But it's more of a tool to get better at playing chess with other people because that's what we want to do, right? We don't actually want to play against the machine. We just want the machine to help us get better at playing against other humans. And so you could argue that the machine is just you know in in servitude of the human in that example and and then that's okay and that kind of brings up a whole other angle we were talking about um, before we started today which was that we all live in sort of two worlds we live where in servitude of each other but then we also live as the served Right, like every day we go to work and serve other people in some way, and then we go to a restaurant and we are served. And I think as we are conflicted in the optimism for machines, you know, at service to us, the the served side of us is excited about getting better service, right? <laughs> <laughs> but the servitude side of us, the ones that that find identity in serving other people are threatened <laughs> about our value in the world. And so when we look at that across generations and say,, um, do younger people, are they as threatened by being less useful to other people? Or are they just more inclined to be served? <laughs> have we raised kids that feel like they have slaves? I have. I know that. (laughs) Um, I don't know if that makes any sense, but it's this idea that we can be optimistic about AI serving us better. Um, And then, you know, I think younger people are are more inclined to be served than to serve. That's my... (laughs) That's another way of calling them lazy. I understand
0: that.
2: (laughs) 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 But maybe it's not lazy, right? Maybe it's just we all prefer to be served than to serve others, right? Um.
1: Yeah, maybe it's, um, me, uh, like, I would po- maybe pose it a different way, which is, like, is it is it not necessarily that they want to be served, but that they want to be able to focus on the things they want to do? So, Mm -hmm. you know, like if there's a way that AI can remove the crappy parts of my job or schooling that are annoying and I dislike and are repetitive and whatever um, and are rote, then uh, yeah, please serve me. But if, you know, I can then indulge in things like the things I like to do, like... Making music, making art, right. like right. all of these things, which could be making yeah. food for
2: other people. So you could argue that's yeah, that's serving others, but in the way you want to. So maybe you're right. right. It's the absence of doing the things you don't want to do. Um, right, I get, I get a vague sense too from presence. like interacting
0: with with young people that they ha- there's more of a malaise I think with with the systems that surround them. Like I don't think they're as impressed by them as we are. Um, and, and it's interesting because we were talking about education. It seems like, you know, one one of the things we talk about a lot on this podcast is kind of this productivity mindset, which I think leads to a lot of the fear around like AI taking people's jobs. But, but that really is kind of seated in the competition that we were talking about earlier. You know, you, you strive to be better than people at school. You want to always be on time. You want to make as, you know, do as many things as you're asked. You do all that correctly. And then your congratulations, you're now ready to go into this other system that, that treats you a similar way. And it seems like there's yeah. a combination of things where maybe young people kind of see like where that's led. Maybe there's a heightened awareness around that. And then maybe there's also just a desire to focus on experience instead of uh, making money, profitability. Right. And then partially right. that's because so many things are now seem out of reach to them, like home ownership, all those things. Right. right? So like this system becomes less and less attractive with each passing day in a sense yeah yeah and i think this idea of blunt algorithms like i think we imagine ai
2: like oh now it will be able to you know wash and wash dry and fold all my laundry every day um, as a blunt algorithm we imagine it will just do all of my laundry all the time i'll never do laundry but as a sophisticated algorithm it may realize that happiness requires some level of struggle so you say hey do my laundry and it says do your own laundry <laughs> <laughs> today right because you need to you need to experience this in order to later be happy when you sit down at the beach um and that we these algorithms have to be more sophisticated to serve us better you know um i i i, I think what this amounts to for me and putting it in the systems sort of category is that I'm very scared of overly simplistic algorithms, um, at mass scale, and I'm very scared of what you talked about, which is measuring the wrong, using the wrong measurements of success. And, and those are the two things that scare me about AI, you know, the other things taking over the world, having agency. You know, that stuff doesn't scare me, but those two things are the two things that scare me the most. It's the, I would say, the the naivety of implementing these systems at scale. Uh, And so when I look at even some of the more sophisticated folks out there talking about, you know, getting it out there like OpenAI, the interesting thing for me is the mistake is the scale in which they're trying to do it. That's dangerous, not, not the algorithm itself, but the fact that, that they want to ideally be a monopoly for these tools.
1: Yeah, it's, it's kind of funny, you know, that so many of these kind of technology leaders um, for years now. Like, they're kind of like, we're building the future. We're we're creating kind of these new things that will fundamentally make the world different. But the one thing that they don't interrogate ever is, like, one, the power they themselves hold, and two, just kind of, like, the business models and the privatization of it all as it exists today like that's like a status quo thing that right. they're happy to maintain because they're just you know they're at the top of that yeah. like, food heap
2: <laughs> yeah the incentive like you said the measurement and the incentive for them is to be as close to monopoly as they can without yeah without crossing the legal line of monopoly um, and therefore their incentive structure is is completely misaligned. So, when you think of like a for-profit s- system that's designed to get as many people using their system and compete and and not have people using other systems. Yeah. That's the most dangerous part of the system itself, not not the system, but the the s- what is it? The system in the system, right? It's not the yeah. solution, but the system around the solution that's more dangerous that's right. than the system itself.
1: Well, I think that's like the fundamental difference now. I mean, this is I agree with you. That's the piece that kind of scares me most is just kind of like this consolidation of power right now on this like on these technologies that are the most, you know, game changing technology since the beginning, like since the birth of the Internet. But you look fundamentally at, like, the birth of the Internet. That was, like, a publicly developed thing. Like, that that uh... was not immediately, like, since it's kind of fallen into the hands of, you know, um, privatized entities. But if you think about that and a lot of, like, other technologies like GPS, et cetera, these were kind of, like, designed by public entities, um, which then end up, you know, like, maybe for... Like, you know, we can talk a little bit. Well, maybe we we can avoid talking about, like, the fact that they're designed for, like, military purposes and things like that. But they ended up being um, put in the hands of, like, citizens before they were monetized or anything like that by um, private entities. And so how does that look different when now we have all of these, like, incredible and powerful new technologies being developed specifically by these private entities whose, uh, you know, probably singular interest is to monopolize the market. Like, how is that going to shape our use of this and then also, like, our relationship with it in general? It's right. society.
2: Yeah, and and to me, it's, yeah, we can, I mean, I'm, I'm you know, the power that they wield um, and the propensity to be for corruption, you know, with that power is one side of it, But the side that i tend to focus on more is just the sheer scale of an algorithm and and the unintended consequences of just everybody using the same gps getting the same route clogs the same roads right until the algorithm is sophisticated enough to distribute the traffic you know it's going to cause more traffic Um, build up than in the beginning than than helping us get to our destination faster so now we're all taking the same routes we're not getting there any faster because we're all taking the same routes (laughs) and to your point what was the objective, to get us there faster or to make money selling GPS's and the answer was to make money selling GPS's because nobody nobody actually can tell you whether we get places faster now
1: (laughs) yeah have you ever been on just like a not a non arterial like a residential road because you're like following Google Maps or whatever? I'm like, why am I on here? And you're there with like ten other cars, right? <laughs> <laughs> I know yeah. what y'all are doing. Like, I know <laughs> why we're all here. It's because we're not actually like using our own brains. We're just like following this right. thing.
2: And thank God we have a diversity in GPS algorithms. Like we're not right. all using the same one. I mean, granted. Maybe not enough diversity, but um, but I think it's localized in this instance, right? In, in the case of geography, you know, we're not all traveling the same roads and, you know, the implications are, are lighter. But when you talk about things like food supply, yeah. something that's global, um, and we talk about all, you know, eating the same foods or going down the same roads or banning a food, right, uh, instantaneously... The implications of that are far more dramatic. Um, and so, yeah, there's something about just simply, you know, scale of unproven algorithms or unsophisticated algorithms that, that the capitalist system of trying to get as close to owning the market as you can, um, it, that system is what these technologies reveal, like the same idea. What did ChatGPT reveal? Not that ChatGPT is dangerous, but that the system in that it was put inside of a company, is flawed.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's um, it's funny because like my students just kind of tease me about like our systems thinking exercises because they always ended it with because capitalism <laughs> it was like, we can just get there, take a drink we, we it. <laughs> first
0: principles it yeah. a little... <laughs> well it does feel like if, if you were going to try to establish responsible use cases for this technology and and i, I like i like where you talk about uh cheryl with like equity centric design like pretty quickly profitability and shareholders become maybe the biggest obstacle to get over so it seems like we have to think of ways to incentivize responsible choices, right? Like we we had a great conversation with uh, Dr. Lee Hood and Nathan Price. They wrote The Age of Scientific Wellness and and they were talking about, you know, they want to bring about a healthcare system that, that they talk about the four Ps. It's like predictive, preventative, personalized, participatory, which is an amazing goal, but we were asking like, how do you get there? And I, I think, you know, what they what they said was that you know, if technology was able to provide, for instance, like a pathway to curing cancer, that that would be such a huge win that it would be impossible for that industry not to reshape itself around that, especially if it was a pathway that involved those four Ps. So I wonder like, what what are some of those incentives that we can maybe look toward? Because it, it seems like they're going to be pretty hard.
1: Yeah. I mean, I don't know. Find. if we, If we talk about like equity in healthcare, it really is like, well, I think first things first, much in the ways that y'all, when you are talking to companies, you sort of unearth the existing problems before like trying to automate things. It's like, um, how about healthcare is a human right? And (laughs) that we should all be able to have that coverage. So how do we fix that in order to be able to kind of make these strides using technology? And I think we sort of like just sometimes flip the script and think that, The technology is going to provide those. The technology is going to correct those inequities um, for us, and that usually is not the case. Um, Working in education, I I think a lot. Like I probably think at least once a week about how the L.A. Unified School District tried to give iPads to like everybody, and this is like ten years ago or what have you. And it's just like the whole the whole rollout the whole like initiative just failed miserably and part of that is like there was no acknowledgement of the existing like inequities in the system well this was one reason there was no acknowledgement of existing inequities in their school system like some kids don't even have um internet access at home so how are they going to like take an ipad home and like try be trying to do like homework on it we saw this At large, during the pandemic, of course, it was like a big wake up call for a lot of like school systems. And, and then on top of that, there was like, yeah, these two giant private entities sort of jockeying for position, which was Apple and Pearson. Pearson was supposed to develop the software to run on these iPads. And basically, it was like a non-competitive environment. They failed on that front. And just like the whole thing was like an incredible waste of time and money for everybody. And I think part of it is because there wasn't like a prioritization of how do we make an equitable system like there are haves and have nots in like within this school system. And if we were kind of like um, if we were able to kind of be more thoughtful and like prompt ourselves about that that maybe we can that helps us to stop looking at technology as just like a silver bullet that will create you know the equality that we don't already have instead oftentimes it just reinforces those existing inequalities
2: right. um yeah technology helps the haves and the have-nots equally essentially so it just perpetuates or exasperates because it's a relative concept right it's not it's yeah. not a it, it the haves, there is no have and have there's just there's just some people having more than others and the and the separation of that and so if they both get technology then they both move you know further up the spectrum so maybe at the so existing maybe, yeah yeah so more more people can read and write but it doesn't it doesn't mean that everyone gets to sit at the front of the bus <laughs> you know and and that's that's a very different concept to say everybody has an equal opportunity to sit at the front of the bus versus, you know, we've given a tool so that the ride's more comfortable for everyone. <laughs> You're still at the back of the bus.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's not, it's, it's definitely like, it's funny because over and over again, sort of the technology themselves are viewed as like, being able to kind of like equalize things like, um, you know, I oftentimes think of like, um, you know, massive online courses. Do you remember that period of time where it was like the year of the MOOC and um, this is going to disrupt education? And Clay Christensen was like, um, "Post schools are all going to be online by 2019. And it was just like, What it did instead was, well, one, these are run by like some of the most elite institutions in the world, like Harvard and Stanford um, and MIT. And essentially what they found after a while is like the only people completing these courses were already people who had existing like master's degrees and things like that. It wasn't like, it was like perpetuate, not just perpetuating the inequities, but it was also kind of like giving a leg up to those who already had a leg up right? Um, in terms of just like additional resources. And so I think it's the sort of thing that, um, you know, will continue to happen with technology unless like we kind of create a system that it lies upon that has equity to begin with. And yeah, so, and equity and that's as the harder question. Incentive.
0: right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Equity as a primary incentive. Like a rogue team of designers out there somewhere, like, like kind of doing the the Lee Hood and Nathan Pricing. Like they'll we'll will create an example of a system that functions so well that you'll it'll be impossible for you to like still attach yourself to this old one. Yeah, I one think- <laughs> oh, one thing ahead. they
2: said, which is interesting, and I think could be borrowed for education, is. This thought is like creating AI and technology as an abstraction layer between people and the current system. So instead of trying to change this system, right, it's using AI to help people manage and operate the existing fundamentally broken system better, (laughs) right?
1: (laughs) What's an example of that?
2: That would be like having your own personal AI healthcare, like uh, you know, concierge. And we talked about having two, so you can watch them argue, so that you can be part of the conversation. But I that, see, yeah, yeah, that would like facilitate your healthcare for you, but would set up appointments with doctors and then make sure that you got in. And 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 in in education, it might be understand all the opportunities that are out there for somebody that's a minority. That they're, that they're not aware of, that they could be taking advantage of. It's one thing to come up with a program. It's another thing for people to know the program exists, right? And in a lot of cases, the coming up with the program is actually the easy part. The getting people to know that the program exists and that they could qualify for it is the hard part. So if you had this abstraction layer where, almost like the ink cartridge, right? <laughs> like the program comes up, your system immediately is aware of it. And aware that you would qualify for it, and takes advantage of it with the course of your cooperation. Now, these ideas can come to fruition because of the the sheer sure nature of this abstraction layer that is able to be aware in real time. This but then sounds capitalism creeps in
0: because who pays for it? <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. And I
1: was I was also going to say like it sounds to me like oh it's your assistant that. Um, sits on hold with medicare for you, you for like eight hours
2: yes or 80 <laughs> whatever yeah. it takes No, it's like
1: <laughs> seriously like that that's like literally happening in people right now like um i actually i think it's medicaid not medicare and it's like they're just like having to stay on hold for uh-huh. two days to even get somebody to talk to them so it's like And it's really that's like just like a really interesting prompt because they feel like in many ways that makes their life easier in the moment. But then does it absolve us of like actually trying to fix the underlying problem? Um, It could
2: reduce the pressure to change for sure, because, you know, okay, it's it's better. And I never and I didn't have to do anything. On the other hand eventually efficiency starts to seep into it, right, and say, oh, wait a second, 80 hours on hold costs Medicare a lot of money in <laughs> <And> telephony. <laughs> so they may be like, okay, I now have an incentive, like humans won't stay on hold for 80 hours, so they have a built-in like cost reduction mechanism. Now they don't. Now 80 hours of phone time is hard for them to stop because they hang up on you after two and then it calls right back. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> and so now they're like, okay, we're going to have to now do something about this because our phone bill is like out of control. <sighs> um Yeah. Well, and, and, and what is reason- it going to be? Oh. Let's get bots to answer the phone. Like that's the.
1: So then it's bots talking to bots. Um, yeah. Here's another example that I use sometimes when I'm kind of teaching systems thinking workshops. Um, Do you know, do y'all know that software that sort of changes people's accents in call centers? I don't know if you've heard about this, but um, so it's kind of interesting because like I kind of ask my students to kind of look at it in a nuanced way because, you know, I I'll provide them with interviews that I've done been done with call center workers saying, this is actually making my job a lot easier. I'm not getting abused on, you know, (laughs) an hourly basis by these people who are racist. And um, but in terms of like the long term, a little bit like, you know, something that will just stay on hold with you for Medicaid. It just feels like you're placing this solution on top of this existing broken system, which is people's bigotry and racism. Right, um, it's like
0: it's
2: like it's from like a people, bleaching yeah, like their sweeps skin. it under the rug. It's like of actually skin, trying to skin, fix it, you know? Yeah, right. <laughs> As a solution to like to racism, right? Like, w- wait a second,
1: right? <laughs> I think that's not, that's not the solution. Yeah, I think we're
2: giving up. Isn't that giving up? Isn't that just <laughs> yeah. okay? Fine, like we're not gonna f- screw it. We're just gonna acknowledge it. And yeah, I agree with you. Um, I think there's ways. <laughs> There's probably ways to do it right in ways that become, excuse me, enablers. Right. Um, and <laughs> to me, it comes down to, as long as we don't do it very quickly at scale, we'll be fine because we will learn the ways in which it goes wrong. If we do it at scale fast, I think you're right. It's extremely dangerous because of emerging complexity that we won't see. Um, emergent negative consequences um, that just all of a sudden overcome us. Uh, you know, it kind of like the trading thing, right? It really comes down to all, all these al- algorithms making trades on on the market, and then right, and then all of a sudden the market crashes because of bad al- algorithms. As long as everybody's not using them, we'll be fine. If there's a diversity. It's it's with humans, with machines, diversity and variety solves complexity. <laughs> and if these things have diverse systems, diverse algorithms, we will probably be okay. If one company runs the abstraction layer <laughs> and controls it, we'll be in big trouble.
1: Which is kind of what's happening now. I mean, uh, like, I mean, you, you know, no. it's, it's, yeah. it's not one yet, but it's like in the hands of so few already that, right. you know, yes. we're kind of yeah. headed down that path, it feels like.
0: Well, it feels too like if, uh, if we did have systems like Rob was describing earlier that are primarily conceived of and managed by artificial intelligence... You know, we had this uh great conversation with a food futurist actually mike lee uh, is on this week's episode and and he was talking about you know how uh the the chess players who have competed against like watson and stuff like said that it wasn't even like playing a human because that, no, they weren't trained by looking at the way humans have played chess throughout history they just knew the rules and kind of made up their own way of playing and the moves that it would start making I think they said, like, seemed like it was an alien playing chess. And it's not hard to imagine that, like, these systems, if they had enough data and enough foresight, like, kind of what you were saying earlier, like, the machine, the system might know that you should probably take the time to clean your own house because you actually need a little time to think and some time to yourself. So you shouldn't have Um, a cleaning service to it today. (laughs) Yeah, it might tell you to do something that seems weird or it's not what you want to do, but it's all part of, like, some, you know, gigantic, uh, I guess, laid-out plan. Yeah, yeah. Or, or, or probabilistic plan, right? Like mm-hmm. less
2: deterministic and more probabilistic. That's just saying, you know, more likely you'll enjoy your meal after cleaning your house today.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's 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 kind of funny because like the way I think about it now is just like um these these sort of systems, you know, are kind of like I don't know, they're really good mimics of like human behavior. And I'm I guess like I I sort of want to believe that like humans still have, you know, what we've kind of thought of as like the crazy gene, like the the thing that makes us like jump into a boat and cross to other yeah. islands in Polynesia, right? Like Yeah.
2: Yeah, our temperature do, setting is, like, is is lower.
1: Yeah, yeah and...
2: We, we do random things, <laughs> and that's that variety. Right. Yeah.
1: It's kind of like, um, wasn't there... There was some study a few years ago that was trying to detect po- possible success on the SAT. Um, uh, I think the, there, it was, like, a set of researchers at Princeton, and they... It was so... It was terrible, actually, at predicting, like, which students, after following them, like, I think through several years of, like, primary and secondary schooling, would perform best on the SATs. And it's, I don't know, I sort of, like, I don't know, there's something about that that gives me sort of faith in humanity is, like, we can still be random enough to just mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> confuse confuse the machines. So I don't know.
2: Yeah, I agree with that. And I think the randomness has to be built into the algorithm to make it not dangerous, otherwise the top performing whatever will always stay the top performing whatever, because well, no human will try something new. We'll only go off of algorithms. And I think we're already experiencing that with reputation. You know, it's this weird ch- chicken or the egg. You write a book, like you did. How do people discover it without good ratings? Well, how do you get good ratings if nobody reads it? it and you're like, well, then how does anyone discover new books? And why, why are we just, we're all just going to read the same old books. Right. Um, and these systems attempt to try to surface those to people, right? um and say hey you know this book with very few reviews you should read but then we as humans often override that algorithm and go yeah but that's not enough reviews i'm going <laughs> to
1: i'm
2: going to do this one that has 13,000 reviews right
1: yeah yeah that's i mean that's similar to kind of like the fretting about you know the Spotify algorithm and that it sort of kind of just keeps like directing you to things. Um, I really dislike my Spotify algorithm because it's just like, it's like it thinks I want more of the same, but I don't. And, right. um, you know, I I'm just curious about like, at what point will the machines get sophisticated enough to kind of be able to insert that level of randomness and diversity that would be reflective of, you know, like like you were saying, like I think there's a lot of people who are maybe like happy with that or we're just kind of like, okay, I just want to um, you know, read like the most the the most popular book that has like yeah. the best highest ratings. and but I think there's a there's enough of us out there who are kind of like yeah. but I don't want that.
2: Yeah, I think my, my I have an opinion. I'm not. I don't know how certain I am on this, but I think until the system is in our brain and has access to all of our sensory data, only then could it effectively predict our random thoughts. Um, that being said, unless it uses our subconscious to plant something in advance. And therefore, determinist, deterministically make us believe it was a random thought, but it had really planted it there through some, you know, suggestive, you know, word or something that flashed yeah. in our subconscious that we didn't know. Right. And that gets kind of scary. You know? yeah, <laughs> yeah.
1: Somebody's going to want that. that's plot of Inception. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. The problem is somebody's going to want that and then like put that out there. But um, that's really interesting. I like that idea of like right now, at least we are, it's based on like just what we do and say externally. Right. And so it can't, there is just like this wall against like what it thinks or, you know, what the system. What we see and what it sees. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's like all the knowledge on the internet reveals quite a bit about us, but not nearly everything. Yeah. <laughs> you know, can... Yeah.
1: Have you ever had like Chad GPT write something for you? It's kind of crappy. Like I was kind of yeah. like, um, this is <laughs> nice it, try. It's like, yeah, it's great <laughs> if you want to write everything that's just like totally uninteresting, but. Um... Yes.
0: <laughs> if you want to write C level college essays, then <laughs> right. Chad yeah. GPT is your tool.
2: Well, what's. What I find fantastic. There's two ways to look at it. So what I think is it's it's not particularly good at coming up with um, innovative, creative ideas. You know, it's good at regurgitating ideas that are common yeah. out there and obvious. Uh, let's call them obvious because they're common, right? And you, you write a book. Um, a good book. One of the key things, and we went through this. We actually went through this in a, in a, in a, like very determined way to make sure that the ideas didn't exist as common knowledge. Right. We didn't want to just regurgitate all the knowledge that was out there. We were like, are these original ideas? Um, and how original are these ideas? And then they deserve to be in the book. If they're not, then, you know, then it's just a waste of people's time, you know, just regurgitating the ideas that are already out there. And I think this same thing, that's what it does. But for those who have ideas that are original and are terrible at communicating them formally, you know, whether it's spelling or grammar or whatever, they now have a voice, right? They it, Whereas they would keep those ideas to themselves or only express them verbally. Now they feel confident that... So there is a, you know, a sort of giving voice to people who may not have a voice today because of the snobbery of literature, right? And... and I would say the education system that grades us on spelling and grammar over ideas, (laughs) the measurable (laughs) things again, (laughs) the easy to measure things. Um, it now says, oh, your idea, you can feel confident in sharing that idea more broadly and, you know, I, I mean, I think that's why some of these media like TikTok, right, why they're so popular is because they abstract the formal need, um, to wrap those ideas in proper grammar, correct spelling, proper use of words, like you're not going to get criticized, uh, in those ways. And so you're going to share the idea in a way that's not going to, that, that at least the idea can be criticized, but not the packaging.
1: I was going to say, like, you will be roasted on the idea. Yeah. So. Yeah. <laughs>
2: yes, yes, <laughs> yes. And and whether that's good or not, it's a whole other subject, but at least you're roasted on the idea and not the choice of words, right? Or the right. the grammar. You know, like, did you put apostrophe S, you know? Right. Um,
1: Yeah, so, it's kind of funny. So, I've definitely heard um, teachers say, like, I knew this was written by ChatGPT because the grammar is too good. And <laughs> yeah. i <just> like, yeah. <laughs> interesting. I know. Okay. I,
2: <laughs> I, I put this post up a long time ago. I found it interesting how few people got it. But I was like, GPT-5, and I had all this bad grammar and misspelled words because I'm like, this is how people are going to prove that it's not ChatGPT? We're now going <laughs> yeah. to like misspell words and... And do things on purpose just to signal it's not ChatGPT, and then ChatGPT is gonna five is gonna consume all of that for its training <laughs>
1: <laughs> and just to eat itself.
2: Yeah, it's gonna eat our bad grammar now, and now it's gonna spew spelling mistakes and bad grammar. Um, yeah, yeah, it's a funny thing. Well, this has been great conversation. I uh, absolutely. It's been fun.
1: Yeah, it's kind of funny because I feel like didn't even talk about my book that much, but like you know, whatever. <laughs> I had fun talking about what we were talking about. It touches on themes of my book.
2: <laughs> yes, systems yes. thinking, I think is, I think a critical component of understanding the future of general intelligence. I think at the core and heart of general intelligence is the idea that machines invent, manage systems, really, um, versus humans. And if you don't understand that most of what we do is a system of some kind, especially at scale, then it'll be hard to understand what the meaning of general intelligence will be, and, and the implications of it is that the systems created, managed, plied by machines is will will give us the perception that a machine is exponentially smarter than us.
0: Yeah. Exactly. Well, I think what's great about your book uh that I was I guess kind of hitting out with that opening question is that I feel like systems design is just a really important facet of the work that designers will be doing once this technology becomes adopted on an even wider scale and and there and I think designers will be the ones who can kind of figure out some of these problems we've been we've been dancing around in terms of like finding new incentives, finding different ways kind of motivate, uh, people in systems. So yeah. And teaching designers
2: to be systems thinkers is critical. Um, Mm -hmm. because it's not just about skin and colors, you know, skinning an app or colors. It's about, and buttons. It's about the system itself, the underlying, you know, goals of the system. Um,
0: yeah, so, and I, I feel like that's I, what Don Norman's been writing about uh, too. Is like, like this new kind of phase of design where you're you're not just thinking about the experience that you're creating for someone in the moment. You're thinking about the resources that go into it, and where that experience, what kind of afterlife it has once someone's done using it, that product, that experience. So, to yeah. me, that all, yeah, that all feels like it's part of the the same really important conversation. So, yep.
1: Well, I'm happy to be part of that conversation and to be helping educate others about it
0: yeah yeah it's awesome it's been great chatting with you thanks again cheryl thank you hey thanks again for tuning in to invisible machines don't forget to follow invisible machines wherever you get your podcasts so that you can hear new episodes as soon as they drop You can also watch this podcast on the Invisible Machines YouTube channel. Thank you so much to everyone who listens to this podcast and especially to those of you who leave comments because we've received a lot of really useful commentary that has helped us shape this podcast as we move forward with it. Thank you as always to our producers, Elias Parker, Kate Timchenko, and our video editor Michael Litvinov for making this podcast look and sound wonderful. We look forward to catching up with you again next week right here on Invisible Machines.